0: Regular listeners to this podcast will be somewhat familiar with my take on cryptocurrencies in general and Bitcoin in particular. Generally speaking, I try and steer clear of the crypto space because though it interests me greatly, I fully understand that those who spend their lives completely immersed in this technology and the narrative surrounding it are at a significant advantage to me. Well, to be honest, the toxicity of the environment is something which I find unnecessary and something of an impediment around both learning and questioning both the technology itself and that narrative that surrounds it. Because of that, I tend to confine my conversations about Bitcoin and crypto to my life away from the microphone, with the notable exception of what was a hugely enjoyable debate I hosted between Mike Green and Nick Carter a few months ago on this very podcast. However. Recently, my attention has been drawn to a remarkable story that sits square in the middle of the crypto world and which has drawn an inordinate amount of attention from those sceptical about both the people responsible for its existence and the integrity of its place in the fast-growing world of cryptocurrencies. I'm talking about Tether, the largest so-called stablecoin, an instrument which underpins much of the crypto market now, allowing access to cryptocurrencies for those in jurisdictions where either regulators or banks, or both, have placed impediments and which provides much of the lubrication required by the gears of the crypto world. For me, there was just so much smoke surrounding this particular instrument and those people and companies responsible for it that I just found it hard to believe there couldn't be a fire somewhere. So I decided to dig into it in the pages of Things That Make You Go, Hmm, in June. What I found astonished me. It's a remarkable story filled with extremely colourful characters with, let's call them interesting backstories, there are lawsuits, judgments, and a raft of unanswered accusations, which I've got to say, create significant doubt around the credibility of this hugely important cog in the crypto gears. The response to that edition of Things That Make You Go Hum was extraordinary, and it's prompted the conversation you're about to hear. My guests in this special edition of the Grant Williams podcast are Bennett Tomlin, one of the people upon whose outstanding work I built my own piece, and George Noble, a tether critic and long-standing pillar of the finance community. George was a former star fund manager at Fidelity and is currently the chief investment officer of Noble Capital Advisors, the eponymous hedge fund firm he founded about 30 odd years ago. Now, the aim of this conversation is to try and bridge the gap between the finance community and the crypto community, to help one understand the other's concerns and hopefully highlight the potential threat posed by Tether to the crypto ecosystem. I'm sure it will generate as many questions as it does answers, but isn't that the point of these types of discussions? Now, if you're not already a subscriber to things that make you go hum, but you'd like to read my report, Schrodinger's Coin, you can download a free copy of it at www.grant-williams.com forward slash download. So with that being said, here's my conversation with Bennett Tomlin and George Noble. Well, George Bennett... Thank you so much, both of you, for doing this. Uh, you know, this is such a fascinating story for me. And um, I wrote this piece about Tether. The feedback has been remarkable. But the vast majority of that piece was built upon the foundations that Bennett and his, his friend and co-host Kaz Pianci and, and Amy Castor and, uh, and Bitfinex on Twitter laid for me. So you know, I was able to follow those those tracks and, and kind of try to unpick the story. But there's so much more to it. and so. You know, what I'd love to do, George, I'm going to come to you in a minute, but Bennett, if, if I can, first of all, publicly to thank you for the incredible amount of work you've done in chronicling this story. But perhaps if we can kind of get into this, because there will be a lot of people here that don't know the story, as I didn't until, uh, you know, my introduction to it was that Doomsday Machine article back in, I guess, January, that first brought it to my attention. So perhaps you could just explain how this story came to your attention and the kind of broad strokes of the trail of breadcrumbs that it took you down?
1: Yeah. So I first discovered Bitfinex and Tether in 2017. I was in my senior year of college and was starting to try to figure out what I wanted to do after I graduated. And I ended up getting interested in crypto, started trying to research a whole bunch of these stuff. And I kept bumping up against Tether and Bitfinex, and then discovered Bitfinex, who was uh, not the first, but one of the first really prominent people to push the Bitfinex and Tether information to the forefront. And so I started reading the work he'd done already, listened to the audio recordings he had of the executives, and then I just kept researching for the next... Three and a half years, uh, reading more about the executives, trying to track what these businesses did over their periods, discovering like the strangeness that was Crypto Capital Core, who was the money laundering payment processor for both of these companies, and like trying to dig into that web, and just continually over the years trying to get like a better, more cohesive picture of what these two companies were and what their role was.
0: So you mentioned on some of the executives there, so let's start by painting pictures of the people involved in these things. Because oftentimes, when you see companies that have a degree of smoke surrounding them, it normally goes back to the people. And, and you know, good friends of mine who are uh, serial short sellers and very successful ones say that that's the first thing they look for. If they look for people who've previously been involved in companies that had a, you know, either a shady outcome or shade around, it's the first big check on the list for them. So
1: talk a little bit about the people involved in this. Sure. So Bitfinex itself was founded by a help desk technician named Rafael Nicolay. In his free time, Rafi liked to look for Ponzi schemes on Bitcoin Talk and places like that that he could participate in. Famously, he defended the Trendon Shavers Ponzi scheme very strongly. And that was obviously a Ponzi scheme that got busted by the Department of Justice and in which he lost a whole bunch of his Bitcoins. Right after he lost a bunch of his Bitcoins in that Ponzi scheme, he decided to start his own high yield lending program where people would lend him their Bitcoin, he would guarantee them a return. Some people on the forum, asked him why they should trust the person who had just gone to bat for this Ponzi schemer and had been such an avid participant in these Ponzis. And uh, his response was basically, don't worry, I make the money through arbitrage. And when he was asked how he was doing his arbitrage, his answer was he would buy it low and sell it high, which is... Not generally what most people would consider arbitrage, but nonetheless, that's what he claimed. And uh, after meeting some of this resistance on the forum, he decided he would shut down his high yield lending program and instead use a bunch of stolen code written by a teenager with known security flaws to start his own Bitcoin exchange. And that is where Bitfinex came from. He was eventually joined by Juan Carlo de who is now the chief financial officer of both Bitfinex and Tether. He was educated as a doctor, but I do not believe he ever actually practiced medicine uh, and had previously had some issues when he had to pay restitutions to Microsoft for selling pirated software. Phil Potter joined a little bit after that. He was a former New York financial guy who had a New York Times profile written about him that caused a little bit of controversy because he uh, was bragging about how much money he was making and things like that. And then, some of the other characters get really weird. So, uh, Stuart Hogner is the general counsel for both Bitfinex and Tether. Before that, he was the deputy general counsel and the director of compliance for a poker company called Ex-Gappa. Uh This company owned Ultimate Bet and a couple of other sites that had a god mode. So, some of the players on these sites were able to access this god mode and see what cards the other players were holding, which was clearly an advantage to them when they were playing poker. And then you also have Tether was founded by Brock Pierce, a former child actor who moved to Spain with indicted child sexual predator Mark Collins Rector. And then they both ended up getting arrested over there in a house that had a whole bunch of child pornography in it. He was joined by a bunch of his old friends from IGE, which was a company that sold farmed MMO items and stuff like that. So Jonathan Yantis came over from there, as did uh, William Quigley, who was another one of the co-founders of Tether, also was with him over at IGE. They were joined by a couple of other people from the MasterCoin Foundation and stuff like that. And then the current like spokesperson slash chief technical officer for Bitfinex and Tether is Paolo Arduino. He, before Bitfinex and Tether, seems to have largely just been a uh, fintech developer for a couple of European fintech companies. The most interesting thing about him is that he is now a director for Dell Chain, which is part of Dell Tech International Group, which is obviously where they bank. So just one of those interesting little things. Yeah, I think that's Most of the prime, oh, uh, the CEO, the CEO, JLVDV, uh, Vanderbilt, he is fascinating because he doesn't make public statements and hasn't really made any in his entire time as CEO of both of these multi-billion dollar companies. And besides being the CEO of both of these multi-billion dollar companies, he's also the executive director for another VC fund and an executive director for a Chinese automotive company. So he's a very busy person who almost never says anything.
0: So there's a couple of things I want to I want to go back to there. A couple of times you mentioned that... Um one or other of those people you just talked about were executives at both companies. Now, you know, the, both companies originally were distinct from each other, right? And there was no suggestion initially that they were, kind of came from the same lineage as it were. But that was proven again, despite denials, I believe, to be completely fake. Is that right?
1: Yeah. And this is this is kind of a complicated story because they, at different times, both acknowledged and denied that Bitfinex and Tether were effectively run by the same group of people. And they would keep going back and forth between like confirming and denying this fact. So like in the very beginning, like late 2014, if you go in the Wayback Machine and look at Tether's website, you can see them advertising that their team of executives is the same team of executives as Bitfinex. But then they uh, end up taking some of that down. And on Bitcoin Talk, you have like Juan Carlo DeVicini, the CFO of both companies, being like, waiting for my invite for Tether on the Bitcoin Talk forums, as if he's not the chief financial officer for this company. Then there's another point before March of 2017, in a WhalePool team speak, where Phil Potter admits that they have uh, basically the same set of shareholders. However, then comes March of 2017 when they get cut off by Wells Fargo and no longer have correspondent banking in the US, and they decide to file a frivolous lawsuit against Wells Fargo. When asked about this lawsuit, Phil Potter, again in a Whale pool team speak, you know, because that's what you do, corporate announcements and stuff, says that, uh, no, we're not the same. We just happened to bank at the same place and had this same problem. Finally, we got the Paradise Papers, which came out, which showed that they had both used Applebee in the British Virgin Islands to incorporate these entities with the same set of executives, for both of the entities. And we now know, thanks to some of the other uh, information that's come out, that they've always been these deeply connected entities under the same parent company starting in, I want to say like 2015.
0: Yeah, and the other thing that I think it's important to clarify here is because when this whole thing started, it was difficult for crypto exchanges to get banking, right? There was there was a, a big stigma attached to it. So a lot of people that started out had to try and find creative ways to take payments, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And there's there's still a bit of difficulty for cryptocurrency yeah. exchanges to find banking. So
0: that kind of brought around that Wells Fargo thing you talk about, that kind of brought Into play a company called Crypto Capital Corp, which was a a shadow bank in Panama. Is is it Panama? Yeah, Panama. I think I'm right. So let's let's just unpack that little episode, and then I'm going to come to George because I think he's going to be champion at the bit to get involved. Yeah. So in
1: 2013, uh, Crypto Capital Corp was founded by Panamanian Canadian. Ivan Manuel Molina Lee and Israeli citizen Oz Yosef. They partnered with Bitfinex starting in 2014, but it was when they lost banking with Wells Fargo in 2017 that Bitfinex and Tether really needed to start relying on Crypto Capital Core more heavily because they had lost all other correspondent bankings. And the The interesting thing about Crypto Capital Core is that despite all of these individual cryptocurrency exchanges not being able to get banking, this panamanian colombian payment processor always seemed to be able to have bank accounts to service these same cryptocurrency exchanges. And what we eventually learned is the reason for that is because Crypto Capital Core was just blatantly committing bank fraud. They were presenting fake bond certificates claiming to have more in assets than they actually did. They were telling the banks that these were real estate companies that needed to get these accounts set up, not payments processors for back page and cryptocurrency exchanges. And so the reason Crypto Capital Corp was able to still maintain this banking for these groups was because they were actively committing bank fraud. Now. Besides actively committing bank fraud, Crypto Capital Corp was involved in some other criminal things. Even Manuel Molina Lee, one of the two principals who I mentioned for Crypto Capital Corp, was arrested in Greece and extradited to Poland on suspicion of money laundering for the Colombian cartels. Important to that, the Panamanian-based Crypto Capital Corp did have a Colombia-based branch that they ended up closing up right around the time even got arrested. They were also embezzling from their client funds, so they ran two sets of books. And Reggie Fowler, one of the other principals for it, had his 10% fund in his master U.S. workbook, both of which documented exactly what he was doing. Reggie Fowler, when he was picked up by the feds, had thousands of dollars in counterfeit bills on him and the equipment to make more. They've also been indicted on wire fraud and... Oh, I think that's most of the things we've learned so far. I, I, th- I
0: think that's enough. I, th- I think that's enough. You know, even if you've missed a couple of things. But, you know, but this, is,
1: this is the interesting
0: part to me because you know, when you hear these stories and you hear about the people involved, it's very difficult to come up with a set of parameters under which anybody would be doing business with these people who was legitimate, was worried about their, their own kind of image or frankly had any other alternatives.
1: Yeah. And I think I think what's particularly striking to me in this story is Bitfinex and Tether ended up giving over $1 billion of commingled client and corporate funds. So each Bitfinex and Tether, each commingled their client and corporate funds. Then Tether and Bitfinex commingled their separate commingled funds together and gave over a billion dollars of those to Crypto Capital Core without signing a contract or agreement of any kind, which sounds absurd to me.
0: It does. I'm smiling as you say that because it just frankly beggars belief that, that anything like this could happen. Okay, so I'm I'm gonna park that there and I wanna bring George in. Because you know, George, Bennett does this and investigates this stuff full time. You and I are a financial market dinosaurs, right? But still we've reached a point here where the crypto world is more and more being sucked into the financial world. And we're at this place now in the rapids where the cross currents are crazy. And it seems to me like the crypto community doesn't necessarily understand the financial community and how it works. And the vast majority of the financial community doesn't necessarily understand the crypto community and how that works. So what was your introduction to Tether? How did you come across this story?
2: So I first was attracted to Tether's story a few months ago when the price of Bitcoin went completely uh, parabolic. And those sort of market patterns have a way of attracting my attention. They speak to me. I've seen many booms and busts uh, throughout my career. Grant, you and I have known each other for, oh my God, going on 30 years. So so whether you're talking about the Japanese stock market, you know, uh, boom, bust, or the NASDAQ crash in 2000, or the credit mania in 2008, facts and circumstances change, but human nature doesn't. And I think you and I, uh, Geron have spoken about you know, some wonderful books, Extraordinary Delusions and the Madness of uh, Crowds by Charles McKay, also the Kindleberger book I recommend strongly, Man- Manias and Panics. And so they always follow the same script because it's, it's, it's fear and greed. So, so my attention was drawn to this whole thing and I started to dig in. And, uh, like you, I'm very curious. And I came across Ben and I, I, I have to commend you, sir. I mean, you, it's just it, the work you've done is exhaustive. And I was chuckling, listen to you uh, speak, it's uh, the old line, you, know, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, it truly is, I don't think the most fertile Hollywood uh, script writer would have such such a fertile imagination. But, you know, so I started to look at it, and I'm like, what's this funny tether thing? And I started to look into it, and I'm like, hmm, this is a bit strange. So a few things sort of caught my eye, and, you know, I'm starting, to, for instance, you know, I started reading about this tether and the meteoric increase in the market capitalization. It went from two or three billion last fall to it's about 64 billion today. And by the way, that run happens to coincide with the uh, this most recent uh, bull market in Bitcoin, which I date from October of last year. Correlation doesn't mean causality, but I started to look into it. And when you look, the, the closer you get, peel back the layers of the onion, the smellier it became. And so I thought it was rather odd, they're printing all these stable coins, which uh, as I came to understand, are basically the digital equivalent or cyber, cyber equivalent of a money market uh, fund. And I'm like, well, wait a second, what's the backing? And then I'm reading about attestations. And Grant, have you ever seen any industry where attestations are routinely accepted in lieu of audited financial statements? I mean, I was like, oh, my. And and a a friend of mine who's an economic historian explained to me, I think, back at the beginning of the 20th century, attestations were used among gentlemen or something like that. But this is just insane. So I start looking. It looks to me like there is no backing. Um, I started to read up uh, from a lot of the writings of Bennett and others uh, and yourself. And, you know, the more I look, the more that my hair started to catch on fire. And you know, I've been at this game for over forty years. I like to joke that I've had a career of listening to people lying to me. It's been an exaggeration, but you know, grant and finance—how <laughs> should we say—company managers don't so exactly always give you the bare case scenario. Uh, and so, my bullshit detector was at a ten. And I'm also reminded of the notion that um, when things aren't obvious, they're not obvious for a reason. There's a reason to keep it that way. Right. And so. Many steps along the way, and we didn't talk much yet about the NY New York AG uh, settlement, but there's so many ways that Tether at any time could have put to rest any of these suggestions, but they chose not to for whatever reason. I mean, imagine, Grant, if you were accused of the most horrible things, that you were embezzling money from your business partners, uh, having an affair with your secretary, um, or into drugs, committing all sorts of heinous acts, well, The easiest way to spell all that is to just say, "Okay, well, here, I'm going to open my books. You can look at all my financial statements. You can interview anyone that I I work with. I'll take a lie detector test. You know, have at it. But curiously, Tether, Bitfinex, this whole crew has chosen not to um, go that route. And so, you know, people say, well, can you prove Tether is a fraud? No, but hang on until Bernie Madoff actually went down. Could you prove that Madoff was a fraud? Could you prove that Enron was a fraud? So I, I just, I mean, the more I look, the, 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 the worse it is.
0: Well, there's a couple of things there. And Bennett, I'm going to come back to you because you mentioned, uh, George, the, the the Miag case. And this was a big deal, although it's been played down by a lot of people. And and I think there are some very obvious reasons why, but we'll come on to those shortly. But Bennett, just to come back to you, if you can lay out the NYAG case, the story, and the settlement, that would, I think, uh, also be highly helpful for people listening that aren't familiar with this.
1: Sure. So uh, as we previously mentioned, Bitfinex and Tether had given over $1 billion of their dollars to Crypto Capital Corp. In 2018, Crypto Capital Corp bank accounts started getting seized around the world as part of a coordinated effort to take down this international money laundering ring. As part of that effort. Crypto Capital Corp lost access to their bank accounts and were no longer able to service withdrawals for Bitfinex. And Bitfinex lost access to about $850 million worth of funds that were stored over at Crypto Capital Corp. Because of this, starting in the summer of 2018, Bitfinex started taking money out of Tether's account and making a ledger notation, basically, that now Tether was owed that corresponding amount from the inaccessible funds at Crypto Capital Corp. They did this throughout the summer of 2018, and because people were having issues withdrawing from Bitfinex and stuff like that, there was increasing criticism of them online. Eventually, in October of 2018, Bitfinex posted a message saying, lying, and saying withdrawals are working fine. There's nothing to worry about. We're totally solvent, and you can tell because our Bitcoin wallet is really big. That's actually what they claimed in the post. Um, and meanwhile, they were still obviously taking these funds from Tether and Bitfinex's account. Then November 1st of 2018, Tether announces that they are banking with Tech Bank and to help diffuse some of the criticism that's been directed their way, by people like Bitfinex and myself, they post this letter from Deltec saying the portfolio cash value at Deltec is more than the number of tethers in circulation. Good news, all the tethers are backed. The very next day, Bitfinex took several hundred million dollars from that account. So November 1st, they released the letter saying, look, we're fully backed. November 2nd, they take $625 million from the account and again, make a book notation, basically saying that Tether's owed the funds from Crypto Capital Core, where it's now been months since they've been able to get any amount out of Crypto Capital Core. They do that and that covers them for the next several months. At some point during this, they get subpoenaed by the New York Attorney General and they start interacting with the New York Attorney General's office. In February of 2019, they finally update their website and their terms of service to make clear that Tether is not backed by traditional currency, which hadn't been true since March of 2017, but they finally admitted it. So uh, February of 2019, about two years later, they changed their website, changed their terms of service and say, Tether will be backed by cash, cash equivalents, loans, receivables, and other assets or something like that. Then in March of 2019, Bitfinex and Tether entered into what they described as an arm's length agreement to enter into a revolving credit facility where Tether would extend up to $900 million to Bitfinex at a rate of like 6%, I want to say, and Bitfinex would be able to access that at any time. And this loan would now be a critical part of the backing of Tether. They described it as arm's length, and I I said it the way I did because the same executives signed the documents for both companies, obviously, and the loan was collateralized with shares of iFinex, which is one of the companies that operates the Bitfinex platform. So if Bitfinex was unable to pay back the loan, those shares would be effectively worthless, and so it was collateralized by nothing, really. And so they enter into that loan agreement. And when the New York attorney general finally finds out about this loan agreement that they had rolled the previous transaction into, Letitia James files for the ex parte order to stop them from doing this kind of transaction anymore. And finally, this is when the public learns about that whole series of transactions because previously that we had no idea that was Bitfinex and Tether self-dealing with no disclosure. The New York Attorney General case then goes on for the next oh, 20 months or whatever. Yeah, two, two years or yeah. yeah. And then they end up finally coming to a settlement. Bitfinex and Tether agree to pay $18.5 million to the New York Attorney General and to cease doing any and all business in New York State. They also have to submit on a quarterly basis for two years, the list of all payment processors they're using, the assets backing Tether, and... They need to do like public attestations of that every quarter for two years. And the cryptocurrency world reads that settlement document where there are two very distinct reactions to it.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I read that and it's not often you see the New York Attorney General in her own name, not even in the name of the office, say that what Tether represented on her website was a lie. <clears throat> Those exact words. I mean, that's pretty, pretty strong. Obviously, the crypto community said, well, hey, look, $18.5 million is peanuts. As is usual in these cases, they didn't have to admit to do anything wrong. And in, and in Tether's announcement after the settlement, I think they said twice in the space of a single tweet that we admitted no wrong. You know, And what's more, we didn't admit we did anything wrong. Uh, it, it was an extraordinary thing to read. But George, just to help people understand this idea of backing, this idea of Tether being backed one for one by dollars. Uh, Stuart Hogan and the general counsel admitted in an affidavit that they were only 74% backed. This was back during the MIAG case, I assume to recall. But just explain why that is a problem, because maybe it isn't. So
2: Bennett, again, masterful the way you laid it all out. Imagine we go to a casino. We go to the Grant Williams Casino, and we want to uh, play the game. So Bennett and I go to the Grant Williams Casino. We go and buy a thousand dollars worth of chips.
0: Hey, that would make you a high roller in my in my Exactly. Okay. And then we go play
2: the games. We go play Bitcoin and Dogecoin and whatever coin. And uh, at the end of the night, we have whatever we have. Let's say we broke even, We have a thousand dollars worth of chips. And we go back to the to the window. Mr. Williams is behind the window, and we say, "Could we please have our, our fiat back? We have dollars back." And he's like, mm, "Slight problem. Well, what do you mean?" Well, we don't have the dollars. And so then everyone on the casino floor realizes that they think they, they've they got, you know, whatever, how many chips they have in their pocket. They think that's real money. Well, it turns out it's not good for anything. So that's really the simplest analogy I can give. Now, the tether... Uh, you know, I don't think we need to go into the excruciating details of the breakdown, but suffice to say, and and Bennett, Grant, you'll correct me, but from memory, I think they only had slightly over a billion dollars, a billion two or something like that. And we're 41 billion tether at the time or something like that. It was only three or 4% back nowadays, by the way, just for those keeping a score at home, it's 64 billion. And so the question is, when we went from a few billion last fall to 64 billion today, how did that happen? Were they just literally making the tether up out of thin air? Or did they actually get some inflows? Uh, some people suggest that some of the dirty money out there, the arms dealers and money launderers and drug dealers of the world may have decided to go through uh, tether. It's, it's a way of escaping the authorities. But at any rate, I think a very large portion of the, so, so when, when a very large portion of the tether not backed, the biggest part of the backing is this so-called commercial paper. And I forget the language around that, but it can cover a multitude of sins. Curiously, no major broker dealer in the United States has ever seen these characters. The amount of commercial paper that Tether owns would place him, I believe, number seven in the country. So it's really very odd. Kind of in the same way when Jeffrey Epstein emerged from the shadows, and you know, he was allegedly had billions of dollars. where that come from? No major broker in investment bank had ever heard of this character. Right. So, right. you know, it's all very strange. So if it's not backed, if it's not backed, if it's all made up question then becomes well so what because many in the Bitcoin community or in the crypto community will say well okay so what we, we, we know that um, or yeah but okay so it'll disappear and who cares it's not relevant to Bitcoin what we care about Bitcoin whatever well here's the relevance here and this speaks to market structure which is a topic I'd like to address it's okay it's okay grant yeah so sure. if the amount of tether outstanding went from a few billion up to 64 billion say in the last nine months you'd say let's call 60 billion increase in tether. And I believe the bulk of that is not backed. But here's the point. Today, the market cap of Bitcoin is roughly, I think, 18 and a half million coins outstanding at a price of 35,000. You're talking upwards of 650 billion. Uh, that's with the Bitcoin price of 34,000. If we go back to last fall, when Bitcoin was 11,000, the market cap would have been just a little over 200 billion. And this is what I think is really missing in the whole discussion about Bitcoin, its market structure. And Grant, it goes back to the point you were making about how there's a bridge here. Many of the the traditional finance types, like you and I, really don't understand crypto or haven't paid attention to crypto. Because, you know, quite honestly, up until a year ago, I mean, it was really a small cap thing, nobody really cared. But recently at its zenith, I think the amount of all crypto outstanding was worth upwards of $2.5 trillion. and so. You take that along with the fact that I think there are eight, maybe now as Kathy Wood's application, nine applications in at the SEC to come out with Bitcoin ETFs where many of the mainstream financial institutions, the Fidelis and JP Morgans of the world are now looking for guidance on how to deal with this because they have to deal with KYC and AML restrictions. Now, people in the fiat world, so to speak, are opening their eyes. And so, coming back to this question of backing, and I want to speak about market structure. Some people say, "Well, gee, George, what are you worried about? 64 billion tether, Bitcoin, 650 billion. It's only tenth of the size." They're completely missing the point. Go back to what I said a minute ago. Uh, when the bull market started, this bull market started, and Bitcoin had a 200 billion uh, market cap, give or take. I've read extensively on this, and people seem to think that the free float of Bitcoin is somewhere between 10 and 20 percent, i.e that which is not being hobbled, all right? So let's be generous. Let's say it's 20%. If you have a $200 billion market cap as of last fall, it would stand to reason that the free float is only 40 billion. If then all of a sudden someone's making up counterfeit coins, let's go to these tethers, and you know, it's like, let's, let's, let's say Bennett and I wanted to corner the market, and jam the price of Bitcoin up. So we just counterfeit all this stuff, we counterfeit, you know, 60 billion or some large portion of 60 billion. I mean, Grant, you're, you're you're enough of a financial market operator. If I tell you we have a sixty billion dollar buy order to go into a market that only has a forty billion dollar free float, you know, fifty dollars in double jeopardy, how high, how high does the price go?
0: Yeah, no, look, look, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right, and that's that. Yeah, you know, that's one of the thus far unanswered questions. Is exactly that: are the tethers backed, and you know, is this made up, or is this, as I've seen the crypto community pivot to? this argument that, well, yes, they're fractionally reserved, but so is the banking system. you know That seems to be the latest response, is that, well, okay, well, why does it matter? Because the traditional banking system is fractionally reserved, so what does it matter if Tethers are? That,
2: that, yeah, but the only problem is, I mean, Tethers, you know, they were saying we're 100% back, we're 100% back, and Stuart Hogan says, well, we're 74% back. Hmm, okay, nothing to see here, move along. And then when they come out with it, You know, they only purport to have 3 or 4% liquid, and that was money they put into account one day and took it out the next. So, I mean, it's like, watch the red card, not the black. I mean, I I think we are possibly, possibly, we're looking at the biggest Ponzi scheme ever, ever. And what people are narrowing the Bitcoin community are, they're ignoring this, or they're willfully blind to this, or they're just ignorant about market structure and financial history. They don't realize the effect that counterfeiting can have on a market. I mean, Grant, imagine, for instance, as an example, right? You own your house and some hot money, say you own a house in Miami or New York City, whatever, and some hot money comes into the market from abroad, either some flight capital from Russia, China, Brazil, whatnot. It just drives the price of everything up. Okay, well, you haven't bought your house during that period of time, but there may be somebody who did. So he winds up paying a high price because the price was elevated due to this, Sort of temporary hot artificial demand. And then let's say it turns out that demand disappears. So that was sort of a, a temporary impulse, a manipulation, if you will. And the price just collapses again. Right. I like to go back to look, look at past manipulations. Okay. Let's go back, I think it was 1979 grand or 1980, you'll correct me, but the Hunt brothers. And, yeah. You know, 18- you know, taking the price of silver from five to 50. So when you have these. Folks in this in the in the financial media running around saying price is truth, price is truth. Was price truth when silver was $50? I think not. It went back down to five. So but I think people are narrowly, they got their blinders on. They're not taking effect of these impulses coming from elsewhere. In particular, the effect that counterfeited tether, you know, undoubtedly inflated the asset prices of everything in crypto. And Bennett, maybe you could speak to this, but grant the percentage of transactions bitcoin transactions the role the tether plays in the crypto ecosystem and it's sort of a counterfactual but you know what would have happened had these tether not cut sort of appeared out of thin air and then finally in the last one i'll get to and i'm throwing a lot of questions out there some of these are rhetorical questions but you know some people say okay well tether's fraudulent we know that all right so yeah there'll be a rug pull when Tether goes belly up, fine. Bitcoin will go down temporarily. It'll be, a, it'll be a temporary shock. Actually, it's even more ludicrous than that. Some people think that, and again, lack of sort of just basic finance. Some people say, well, you know, if Tether goes down, Bitcoin's going to go up. like, we'll well, Why is that? Well, they're going to sell their Tether and go buy Bitcoin with it. I'm like, well, wait a second. That presumes it's a buyer for the Tether, number one. Number two, that's not the way it works. I mean, Grant, you would know, um, and, and Bennett, um, you know, when you have a financial crisis, just by analogy, in, the, in, in, in markets, you know, go back to 2008. You know, if a money market fund breaks the buck and people are now wondering about how liquid they are, you know, it's a liquidity shock to the entire system. Everything goes down. We can argue some what goes down fastest. But, you know, if you have $100,000 in your Fidelity brokerage account, $70,000, which is invested, and $30,000, which is, say, in a Fidelity cash reserve, some money market fund. And as far as you're concerned, that's a cash equivalent. And you find out one day that that money market fund broke the buck, um, and all of a sudden that thirty thousand isn't worth thirty thousand. Something worth worth a lot less. You're less liquid than you thought you were, and you're probably it's liquidity preference argument. You're going to go sell some things, and so that's why Timothy Massad, the former commissioner of the CFTC, I'm sure you all saw the article about three weeks ago, the beginning of June, was speaking about how this could be a nuclear winter for crypto. That this could be cataclysmic. And so I actually believe that the counterfeiting of Tether has played a material role in the price evolution of Bitcoin. This is not about the technology. This is not about the technology. I mean, the problem is when you talk to to the Bitcoin acolytes, they like to be called maxis or Maximalists. No, no, I think acolytes is a more appropriate term. When you start talking about market structure and about the, the fundamental valuation of Bitcoin, their response is one of, well, look at the price somehow as if price is truth or they give you some techno babble answer, which is irrelevant. Okay. We're talking about the price of Bitcoin, which, you know, it's gone up. I mean, we're in this hyper liquidity environment, the price of everything's going up, anything that's not bolted down is going up in price, you know, whether it's crazy. It was was crazy. SPAC stocks a few months ago, you know, EV stocks, whatever, everything is going up in Bitcoin because it's relatively, it's relatively price and supply and elastic. Um, price and elastic, supplies, price and elastic, um, it's easy to push up, just like the price of silver was easy to push up 10X uh, 40 years ago. So I think when Tether collapses, in my view, it's a question of when, not if, it's gonna have a very material effect on the price of Bitcoin number one, number two. More importantly, for those who think that once we get that shock out of the way, we're gonna go back to our regularly scheduled programming of 200% of your returns of Bitcoin, that's really, this whole price evolution has been a complete fugazi. I mean, it's just been it's been a complete distortion. And so, I, again, I think we're witnessing the biggest Ponzi in the history of mankind right now with this tether counterfeit.
0: Spoken like a true salty no-coiner, I think they like, like, call cool, you, <laughs> you George. Okay, so Bennett, let's dig into this a little bit. Let's suppose that the cattle start getting a little bit scared. Can you talk a little bit about the process for redeeming tethers and the smoke that also, perhaps coincidentally, but likely not, seems to be swirling around the redemption process for tethers.
1: Sure. I think George pointed to a really good thing with the money markets breaking the buck in 2008. Like uh, I've written about this a little bit, but with the Reserve Primary Fund, it ended up breaking the buck because 2% of its backing was in Lehman Brothers commercial paper, right? And right. then that ended up, Lehman Brothers goes bankrupt. 60 or 65% of their assets are withdrawn from that money market fund within the next two days. Right. And the reason I'm drawing attention to this is because Tether is backed 50% by commercial paper of unknown quality. and you'll often see a defense from certain Bitcoiners that the risk of a bank run on Tether is relatively low because there's never been one before. And Tether itself reserves the right to not redeem your Tethers or if there's insufficient cash to give you whatever securities, horses, whatever happen to be in the reserves. And so a bank run on Tether would look a little bit different than a bank run on a money market fund. The reason there's a lot of confusion and smoke around tether redemptions is because there have been very few people who have been open, honest, and forthright about what the process of issuance and redemption looks like. There's a few major desks who regularly talk about redeeming tethers. I'm thinking of Galaxy Digital, CMS Holdings, and especially Alameda Research. Alameda Research, run by Sam & Sam Uh, Sam of FTX, obviously, they have been very open recently that they are able to purchase tethers, redeem tethers, and that they actively arbitrage the peg. That when tether is above or below a dollar, they'll be making those trades to try and make that free money, basically. The issue is the only people who have any right to redeem tethers are tether-specific clients. So the few small desks or whatever who are set up and verified with tether are then able to redeem. The vast majority of Tether holders have no path to redemption. They're not registered clients of Tether and there's no real way for them to become registered clients of Tether because Tether keeps that group relatively small. And so in the case where there starts to be an issue with the peg, the first ones to probably know about it would probably be Alameda. They would see the distortion in the peg, they would try to play it and then quickly realize that something was wrong more than usual. And then in that case, it's a little bit unclear exactly what would happen or what would then follow. The people who say Bitcoin would go up as people try to get out of Tether might be partially right on the Tether exchanges. So what I would expect you would see in those cases is a huge premium open up between the price of Bitcoin on exchanges that primarily denominate in Tether and the price of Bitcoin on exchanges that primarily denominate in U.S. dollars. So on an exchange like Binance, where a lot of the pairs are against Tether, you might see people willing to trade absurd amounts of Tether for like one Bitcoin, 10 million Tethers, 20 million Tethers, whatever, because everyone's aware there is some risk of Tether. And so if something starts to go wrong, there's a contingent of people who are going to be pretty sure it might be the thing going wrong. Meanwhile, though, I expect you would see anyone else who is able to start to exit the market because they recognize that a $64 billion pool of liquidity potentially evaporating in this small of a market, especially one that collateralizes so much of the futures and so much of the leverage in the space is likely to be damaging to the price of these assets. And so because only a few people can redeem, it's a little bit unclear what redemptions actually look like. So the traditional model of Tether, the one that's described in the white paper, is you give your cash to Tether, then they issue the Tethers, you use your Tethers, and when you're done, you take them back like the chips to the casino. It was revealed in the New York Attorney General investigation that things were a little more complicated than that, that Tether was loaning out Tethers to various trading firms including ones in New York and things like that. And so my intuition about this is that likely many of the desks issuing and redeeming tethers are not necessarily giving dollars and then getting dollars out. There's likely more complicated loan agreements and stuff like that between tether and these clients. And so without a better view into what that might look like or what a redemption actually is, it's a little bit hard to determine what would likely happen.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the patterns of tether printing, because that's something else that fascinates me. You know, we've seen enormous amounts of tether get printed at very interesting junctures in, in the market. And the pattern of what the Bitcoin price does is highly predictable. And then, you know, several months ago, around the time of the New York Attorney General ruling, the tethers' issuance seemed to kind of plateau and go sideways for some considerable amount of time. At the same time, uh, or certainly more recently, we have started to see a lot more activity in Circle, another uh, stable coin. So perhaps you could talk a little bit about those trading patterns between Tether and Bitcoin, the issuance patterns, and where something like Circle comes into this story.
1: There's been... Lots of people who've tried to use Tether issuance to try to find predictive relationships with Bitcoin price. Griffin and Shams did their paper, taking a look at that, where they came to the conclusion that Tether flows were predictive and may have been manipulating the price of Bitcoin. Part of the issue with me is fraudulent printing of Tether looks a lot like a whole bunch of new money legitimately entering the ecosystem. If someone just happened to actually give Tether $20 billion or whatever, it would look a lot like Tether printing 20 billion fake dollars. And so just those patterns alone for me are not sufficient evidence that there's anything amiss there. But what's more strange to me is how rarely you see the market cap of Tether go down. So like recently with USDC, since the market has started going down, we've actually seen pretty significant redemptions of USDC and the number outstanding has decreased. With Tether, we have yet to see that. And throughout their history, there's only a few specific periods where we have seen that from like 2014 through 2018, there was only like one or two minor redemptions that actually dropped the market cap of Tether. And then there was a few in 2018 where we actually saw the market cap of Tether decrease. And then since then, I do not believe the market cap of Tether has ever reduced decreased so either no one's actually redeeming there's always less redemptions than there is new interest in tether or there's something else going on because unlike the other stable coins you basically see tether's market cap continually increase and, and if i could just jump in you know the nature of the
2: crypto market is such that because the miners are mining there's a continual need for fiat inflow into the system to sustain prices because the miners are mining it in order to sell them at some point. Whether they sell them straight away or later it doesn't matter. But, and obviously this varies with the hash rate and whatnot. But when we did the calculation the other day, it's like two weeks old, the number of Bitcoins being created was about 900 a day. It's lower now. 900 a day, which at today's price would be about $30 million a day, which for an entire month would be running upwards of 900 million. Let's call it a billion. I like round numbers. And then if you look, if you just then figure out and then look at the, you know, it's only half the market because all the other coins, you know, maybe two billion, but let's just humor me for a second. All right. So you're talking two billion a month need of, of, of extra supply coming on, which if sold is going to push down prices. So you need even to never, this is the way a Ponzi works. You need ever increasing amounts of money to sustain the price. And then to your point, not only has the amount of tethered never gone down, uh, it's kind of interesting. It's kind of gone the creation numbers have gone flat recently it hasn't gone up, up all that much material amount, but if you look to the etf flows um we've seen not one not two but three consecutive weeks of ad flows i think totally around 220 million from memory and so if you say right well liquidity is draining that usdc is going down and etf flows are negative and then you recognize that the system is really needs more fiat to keep going. And then you see things like Binance. I, mean, uh, I don't know. Ben, it may, it may be your fam- the famous story you said before about the arbitrage guy. Maybe he could explain this to us also. You see you see the posted interest rates. You know, <laughs> I mean, two weeks ago, I can see you guys are laughing. Two weeks ago, Binance was averaging 71% interest rates. Okay, Grant, wait, there's more. Then it went to 81%, okay? The last one I saw was 100%, right? Like for $50 in double jeopardy grant, if you're walking down the street and you see a bank offering a 7% interest rate, forget about 100% interest rate, okay? You would run that walk as fast as you can away from that bank, you know, move along, nothing to see here. I mean, this is madness. I mean, that looks like a fraud, smells like fraud, quacks like a fraud, it's fraud. And now well, I think George,
0: it's, it's, this this is interesting. Let me dig into this because this speaks, I think, to the point you made about each of the sides not understanding the other. Right? This is, I think, at the very heart of this because those double-digit interest rates, people do get paid them. Right? People do get paid. Them. There are people who have staked their coins and who have been paid seventy percent interest rates over a, a short period of time. They have been paid. 20, 30, 40, 50%. And it works, right? But this is why I think it's important for people who are doing this to understand the point you're making. Because you can get 70% on your first Bitcoin. You can get 70% on your second Bitcoin. You can get 70% on your third Bitcoin. But when the fourth one goes, boom, and the whole thing goes away, you lose your Bitcoin. And so, yeah, and
2: also if you have have to stake it for a long period of time, you can't get it out, all right? You know, exactly. Yeah,
0: let's talk about this for a second because to the idea that basically each side of this has 50% of the complete understanding of the picture, let's try and explain to people how these schemes work and why the fact that you got 70% interest once doesn't necessarily mean it's a good idea to roll the dice and try and get 71% the following week. Just explain how that works and how those schemes tend to unravel.
2: Well, it's, it's, a, it's always a question, of, the definition of a Ponzi is you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul, right? So it's like you said, we'll pay out 70% of the first coin, the second, third one, and the third coin. And as more and more people get attracted to this whole scheme, we need more and more inflows to keep paying people off to make it lend the appearance that it's okay. And as long as money keeps coming in, it works. So let's go back to Madoff, okay? And it's a little bit different, but let's also go back to when the mortgage-backed securities market blew up in 08. Madoff, so you know, people say, "Well, you know, everyone kind of knows Tether's the problem. You know, don't worry about it, yada yada." Well, you know, go back to Madoff. People kind of Madoff, you know, especially because I think he was president of the uh, of, of the NASD. But it was kind of, and he kept putting out these twelve percent returns or whatever they were, remarkably stable. But as long as the market environment was okay. And the odd person that tried to get the money out, but after who'd want to get the money out and making those kinds of returns, he was above suspicion. But it was only in the aftermath of the crash in 08 that more people want to take their money out. And that's when the problem started. All right. And so it all goes to the confidence in the system. And I'm going to digress for one second, but let's go back to the to Lehman and Bear going bankrupt in 08. It was the mortgage backed securities market that was their undoing. What it was was the loss of confidence in their solvency, um, which of course was tied to the mortgage backed securities market. But what really brought them down was your inability to roll their paper. They were 40 or 50 times levered. And if they couldn't roll their paper, you know, if they lost the confidence of the markets, couldn't fund themselves, was game over, all right? So that's what brought them down. That's what brought Madoff down, all right? Tether is a weird situation because they don't have external liabilities in the form of you know equity or debt, they have these coins. But if everyone comes to realize the coins are just maybe confetti money, and you know we've all been had by Grant Williams Casino, and they, he's taken our money and made off with it, okay? Then I think people are gonna start to say, well, wait a second, this is all monopoly money, get me out i want to sell everything oh by the way oh my god they've been they've been been counterfeiting this tether for how long oh well what what would bitcoin have done without this and then the most interesting thing is if they go to try to sell some bitcoin and if the pumping stops because of counterfeiting because of the authorities crack down on them and again we haven't really talked about this this, but i know you're aware of this grant but I, i just think we're witnessing regulatory failure on just a massive, massive scale. And it's not just crypto, it's everything, all right? So the point is, with people go to try to sell their Bitcoin and fiat's leaving the system and uh, there's no counterfeit tether there to pop up the price, people, you know, live by the sword, die by the sword. You know, they benefited from the inelastic supply curve, but that can cut both ways. The elevator will go down much faster than it went up. And I think people, in the crypto markets, they really need to study their financial history to understand what it means when you have such such a one, one-sided one market.
0: Yeah, that idea of financial history, again, is, is such an important one for people to understand. But the other thing I think is um, Jim Chanos has, has called this the golden age of fraud, the golden age of white collar crime. The other part of this seems to be regulatory. There's a, there's a component to this that seems to be not just in the crypto space, but there seems to be a, a, a dereliction of duty on the part of regulators, right across financial markets. It, whether it be the kind of slap on the wrist that Elon Musk had for his yep. his securities fraud, let's face it, it was securities fraud. And, and for the rest of his life, he can never deny having committed it. But it was a slap on the wrist. It wasn't this idea that we'll pay a fine but not admit any wrongdoing. So the New York Attorney General in the case of Tether seems to have set out her stall. And even though the actual settlement seems to be a paltry amount, given the numbers we're talking here, it feels, given the reaction to the, the release of those two highly detailed pie charts of Tether about, their, about where their assets are held, it feels to me like maybe there is some teeth in that ruling. You know, Bennett, I think the work that you and Kaz and others have done in drawing attention to that, to me, means that when the next data is released at the end of this quarter, which will presumably, provided there aren't any strange delays, be in a matter of weeks. For every one set of eyeballs that was looking at those pie charts in May, there'll be five looking at them when they get released in July. So maybe there is some teeth in this New York Attorney General ruling after all. George, what do you think about that?
2: Yeah, and I I totally agree. I mean, look, the New York Attorney General is working on behalf of the residents of the state of New York. So she got what she needed, which was to ban them from ever doing business again in the state of New York. Okay. I'm of the belief that, you know, as you rightly pointed out, the wording of that settlement is incredibly damning. All right. Now, the apologists will say, well, it was only $18 million. I think there's a good reason to believe I mean, The DOJ has been in on this since 2018. I think Ben has some thoughts about there's also perhaps another case going on. Ben, you should speak to this that's going on uh, involving one of the other luminaries that you mentioned before, which is kind of related to this whole thing, which may be accounting for why the DOJ is taking so long. But, you know, Michael Green made an excellent point the other day. We were in a clubhouse room. Everyone keeps saying, well, you know, when's this going to come unwound? And I know, Bennett, you said in times where you thought we're getting very close, and I think Green said the same thing. Look, we have no idea. It could be next week. It could be next year. Who the heck knows? All right. Michael Green made a very interesting point, and he said that um, the whole colonial pipeline fiasco from a few weeks ago, when the ransom was paid out in Bitcoin, you know, the feds were able to get some some of it back because the bad guys had gotten careless and so on and so forth. But it seemingly has set off alarm bells, and the authorities now realize just how dangerous and how vulnerable the situation is. I'd point out to you, I'm sure you're all aware of this, but to our listeners, just this past week, over the weekend, the UK took some regulatory action against uh, was it finance? I think, uh, uh-huh. As the, as as was the case in Canada, uh, in Japan. Uh, so I think the wagons are circling, and so I, I, I and as Michael Green said, the bear has been poked. The regulators have woken up. I frankly would be surprised if we don't see something happening relatively soon. Whether you measure that in weeks or months, I don't know, but. It, you know, and speaking to some major financial institutions, they've got a problem now because this KYC thing has landed on their lap. What do they, you know, well the big the sorry the Bitcoin thing is crypto issues landed on their lap. What do they do? And you have the SEC, which you know turns down one. Bitcoin ETF application after another, and for good reason. So this is square and center in front of the regulators now. They, they can't ignore it. So I, I think they're keenly focused on it. I don't know, Ben, what's your take on that? And specifically, you mentioned this other case, going, on, which you thought may in part be accounting for why the DOJ process is taking so long.
1: Yeah, the DOJ subpoenaed Bitfinex and Tether back in 2018, uh, supposedly as part of an investigation into price manipulation of Bitcoin. I think one of the big things that has slowed that case down is the Reggie Fowler case. So Reggie Fowler, former part owner of the Minnesota Vikings, was one of the principals for Crypto Capital Corp and was arrested and has been going through his case. That case has had a lot of delays. He initially was going to sign a plea deal and then he showed up to court having told the judge he was going to sign a plea deal and they ended up not signing the plea deal. Then because he wasn't paying his lawyers, his lawyers stopped representing him and it took him a long time to find new lawyers who would represent him. And then there have been a whole bunch of COVID related delays and hearing related delays. So he was arrested back in uh, late 2018. And that case is supposed to be going to trial soon, I think. And as we mentioned before, Crypto Capital Corp was this like shadow bank for Bitfinex and Tether and was involved in all this pretty clearly unsavory activity. And so my intuition is that there might be things that that case is likely related in many ways, both large and small, to any case against Bitfinex and Tether. And so that may be one of the things contributing to how slow the department yeah. of justice has been for this.
2: I, I, mean, I mean, look, clearly there's an the amount of deduction that's required here. But one thing I would say, I mean, given all the risks involved, even if you, for those who still like crypto, you know, without hesitation, I mean, get your coins off the exchanges by all means. I mean, even the Bitcoin acolytes will tell you that. Cause I think there's a risk when this thing goes down, given that, you know, the exchanges are the same as the brokers. They all owe each other and cross-collateralize all this other nonsense. If you have any money stuck in those exchanges, good luck getting paid out. It'll take years before they come untangle all this stuff. So I think these these exchanges should be avoided like the plague. And the other thing too, and I know, Bennett, you've spoken on this, and, and, and Grant, I don't know if it's relevant for this, we have enough time to talk about this, but Bennett, maybe you could speak to a role that a lot of these social influencers have been playing and the way they've been leading, it really, it's almost engaging. It's just securities violation it's promoting things. And then, you know, related to that, I have a real hard time with, uh, I know, Bennett, you'd spoken about regulatory capture. And, um, you know, there are people who know better, former officials who know better, who should be speaking out. You know, it's like the, when you see the signs in New York City subway system, when you see something, say something. But they're all hollowing their coins or feathering their own nest or whatever. And it's just horrible. There are a lot of people in a, in a, in a position to speak out. They don't. And they're using the, a lot of retail investors and just abusing them. So I don't know, better what, what do you view? T- maybe speak to the regulatory capture or the role of a lot of social influencers, because the moral outrage I have against this, I mean, it's just its just—it's just staggering.
1: Yeah. So Cass and I actually did an episode on that recently with what we coined uh, shill influencers," which are these influencers in the cryptocurrency space who are basically continually actively committing securities manipulation, or at least like disclosure issues. And often what they'll do is they'll get like a discounted part of a coin as part of a presale in exchange for them promoting it to the wider public. And because these coins often have such vanishingly low liquidity, they can't actually exit their position. They've got such a small number of the coins and the liquidity is so small, they can't actually exit. And so often what you'll see these shill do is promote the coin while they're selling it to basically create the liquidity they need to exit. You'll also see this with some of the less savory VC funds in crypto, where they'll get large presale allocations and then immediately start dumping while still writing positive reports or generally promoting it because they're trying to create the liquidity for their own exit. And that's just a very common pattern you see in crypto. And I'm reminded of like Brad Mills comment about Max Kaiser, where Max Kaiser is a Bitcoin promoter who has also created a couple of his own coins and promoted those and done some less than savory things in that regard. And when Max was being criticized for some of that after he spoke at the Bitcoin conference, Brad Mills, who's another Bitcoiner, immediately came to his defense and was like, well, yeah, but that was 2015. Everyone was scamming back then. And like, it's just such like an expected part of the crypto ecosystem that if you scammed six years ago, you're clean by now. So, yeah, that just speaks to crypto more broadly. And then uh, the other question was about uh, regulatory capture. And I think we've really seen a lot more of that recently. The most striking example for me was Brian Brooks, who is the uh, acting comptroller of the currency under Donald Trump, ended up leaving that position and immediately went and became CEO of Binance US, right? And this was like in the context of the Tai Chi document talking about Binance's regulatory arbitrage strategy getting leaked and all that. You would think the former comptroller of currency would know better than to do some of these things, yet he left his role in the federal government as a regulator and immediately went through the revolving door into a CEO position at Binance US.
0: Yeah, this, I mean, this, is, this does bring us on to the characters in the space. And, and I'm, you know, I find myself really puzzling about this because in, in amongst people who I think are just flat-out shills in the space, and there are a lot of them, and look, any nascent corner of the financial markets like this is always the Wild West, George. You and I have seen this for years, right? It, it's always the Wild West until some kind of sheriff puts on a badge and wanders in and starts to clean up Dodge. But in the midst of a lot of people who I recognize, because I've seen this kind of behavior in all kinds of instruments over the years, I find people for whom I have a tremendous amount of respect in amongst this, right? Mixing it up with people and not shilling necessarily, but being very strong advocates for Bitcoin in specific terms and crypto in general. So I, you know I find myself in a very puzzling place with this. George, you know, what do you make of the kind of the way Wall Street has embraced crypto.
2: Look, they're all talking from a point of self-interest. You know? Well yeah,
0: that's Wall Street, let's face it.
2: Yeah, you know, and so they're all they're all talking their book and you know, Wall Street's always been a den of thieves. We know that, right? But I think what's happened here, going back to your, to your point about, you know, from Jim Chanos, we're living through the golden age of white-collar crime. I mean, there is no sheriff on the beat. And so every one of these that's let by just emboldens everybody else to do likewise. And it's not just, you know, taking personalities. And by the way, did you see, I think it just happened yesterday or the day before, Tom Brady and his uh, wife came out. I can't believe it was for FTX or something like that. FTX, Oh, oh, by the way, by the way, by the way, Grant, you're also a bit of a historian. Um, We know the history of, uh, and and Ben, maybe they're a little too too young for this, but we know the history of usually what happens when companies put their names on stadiums or arenas. I give you Enron Field in Houston, or um, one of the best ones. It never opened as such, but where the New England Patriots play, you know, I lived in Boston for so many years. Gillette Stadium, horror of horrors. Before it opened, it was Kristen's CMGI Field, which you may recall. Right. Oh, that cycle was the most spectacular of all, of all the bus. And so you don't see these things at bottoms. Okay, let's just put it charitably. Uh, but coming back to it, there are people who know better. I mean, so there are a lot of regulars who know better. I mean, it's one thing, like, if you're just some, you know, and I feel sorry for all the all, all the individual investors who are going to get bagged in this, all right? And by the way, the reason the end has to be put to this now is because as painful as the adjustment process might be, if it's allowed to grow and metastasize, it's going to get even bigger, all right? But you have people, you know, who don't know, the individual investors maybe being conned by the nonsense coming out of Wall Street and some of these promoters. And then you have people who know better. And it's just they know where their bread is buttered and they're not saying anything. And those are the people... I have the highest contempt for.
1: Yeah,
0: look, it is madness, but it speaks to the power of narrative. It speaks to being uh, a good salesperson for an idea, which is
2: is what- sorry to interrupt, but it's exactly Elon Musk. It's the same thing. It's It's the power of the narrative, all right? And that's the problem. Again, going back to my discussions with the Bitcoin acolytes, I talk in terms of figures. They speak in terms of narrative.
0: Before we wrap this up, there's a couple of bits of this story that I I hate to jump around, but I have forgotten to to bring those into discussion because they are important. And again, they speak to the smoke surrounding Tether. And, And the first one of those, Bennett, is the way the Tether audit has gone. I mean, this is something that has been promised for I mean, I don't know how many years this has been promised, but the story of that promise and how it's played out and also how it turned into an attestation and then the kind of machinery that went around that attestation, I think is another important thing to come back. So with with apologies for jumping around, can I just take us back to that and you just lay out the story of the Tether audit? Because let's face it, given everything we've talked about, a clean audit from Tether would instantly to george's earlier point make the skeptics scuttle back into their holes and you know allow this thing to progress as it is
1: yeah so the best place to start with this is actually in late 2016 when bitfinex is hacked One of the largest Bitcoin hacks in history, Um, they end up having to haircut their customers, take like 36% off of what they claim at the time was everyone's account and replace it with this BFX token, which was meant to be valued at a dollar. And over time, they would give you the dollars and take your BFX tokens and eventually you'd be made whole. It later came out due to some reporting by Nathaniel Popper at the Times that not everyone actually did get the haircut. Coinbase threatened to sue, so their account didn't get the haircut. But as part of the stuff surrounding this, there was a lot of criticisms of Bitfinex and. People who thought that Bitfinex might be holding their own corporate funds in reserve, that the haircut was larger than it needed to be, which, I mean, it was. We just established not every account was haircut. And so Bitfinex promised that they would share the methodology for the haircut, which they never did because they can't. They can't show that they didn't haircut everyone. And they also promised full security and a full financial audit. Tether had been promising an audit since 2014 when they had first started, and never provided one. But finally, uh, a couple months after this hack, Bitfinex and Tether both hired uh, Friedman out of New York to audit both of their books. Complicating things right around this same time, Wells Fargo cut off Bitfinex and Tether from banking. So March of 2017, Bitfinex repays all their BFX tokens and it immediately loses banking in the same week. Uh, the timeline's a little unclear, what was happening that week, but Bitfinex claims to repay all the BFX tokens. Wells Fargo cuts them off and Tether is now without banking for the next several months. Ostensibly, the backing that they claimed to have was about $61 million that they held in trust at the account of Stuart Hogner, their general counsel.
2: Wait, 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 wait Bennett, Bennett, Bennett. Stuart Hogner was holding $61 million in his personal account? Of and X's and Tethers money? Are you serious?
1: Yes, that's that's exactly true. And the other... Nothing to see here. Just move along. Nothing to see here. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> the, the other problem uh, during this period, from like March to September, when we'll finally get to the attestation, the number of tethers in circulation increases from about 50 million to about 440 million. Meanwhile, the only ostensible backing under Tether's control is the amount held in trust at Stu's account, which is never greater than $61 They claim the rest of their backing during the New York Attorney General investigation is held at Bitfinex's account at Noble Bank. Now, Noble Bank is not a bank. It's an international financial entity started by Tether co-founder Brock Pierce and John Betts. So, allegedly, the money is held at this account at Noble Bank. That account, during that period, received deposits from only two Bitfinex clients, neither of who purchased tethers. Nonetheless, the number of tethers in circulation increased from $50 million to $442 million, I think it was. During this period, Tether is supposed to be getting an audit from Friedman. Eventually, it becomes clear to Tether that an audit is not going to happen, but they do not disclose it to the public. We'll get to when they disclose it to the public, but they create an agreement with Friedman for Friedman to do an attestation of Tether's bank account or of Tether's reserves on September 15th. On September 15th, in the morning, Tether finally gets a bank account at Noble Bank, the international financial entity started by Tether's co-founder. And that same day, hundreds of millions of dollars are transferred from Bitfinex's account at Noble Bank to Tether's account. At 8 p.m. that evening, Friedman does their attestation, sees the money is in the account, and gives the report to Tether with like, There are a lot, there's a lot of caveated language in that report, basically saying we can't make these assurances or this assurances, we weren't able to see this or this. But from what we did see, there was this amount of dollars in these accounts, which is greater than this amount of tethers, which are in circulation.
0: At a specific time on a specific day.
1: Yes. And that's important here because the account was opened that morning and hundreds of millions of dollars came into the account that day. And as we discussed with Dell Tech before, the money doesn't necessarily stay in the account. When they got the Deltek letter, the money was there on the first, gone on the second. And so Tether gets this attestation and claims they're still working on an audit. A couple of months later, a Tether spokesperson admits that the audit is not going to happen, citing the excruciatingly detailed procedures that the auditors were trying to follow. And so Tether does not get an audit. I would also like to add that, as I mentioned before, Bitfinex also promised to get an audit. They have yet to release a statement on the progress of that audit, but I think it's pretty safe to say that they are also not going to get an audit due to excruciatingly detailed procedures. and. It's funny to me to reflect on this, because you've heard claims from a lot of Tether executives and Tether defenders that it's impossible to get an audit. But in the history of Tether, they hired an auditor. They had an auditor who agreed to do it. So every time I hear that, like, it's impossible, but someone was, there was the person who was going to do it. It obviously was possible. And so, yeah, Tether ends up, we'll say uh, Tether and Friedman's relationship dissolves. We don't technically know that Tether fired Friedman. It feels like a reasonably safe assumption, but um, the audit never happened and no audit of either company has ever happened.
2: By the way, I I, I have to laugh because, I mean, it's impossible to make this up. And also there was a brilliant tweet, Grant. I'm sure you saw it the other day. Someone took a GIF of Trump and of him and it said, i have been under audit for 15 years. I mean, (laughs) the audit's coming, the audit's coming. We'll have the figures. Okay,
0: you know. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's remarkable. And this distinction between an attestation and an audit is so important to understand. But again, you know, when we come back to this, the understanding of the crypto community of the financial world, you can see here that Tether have basically thought, well, you know what, We'll, we'll come out and we'll just say, yeah, don't worry, we've had our attestation. And people will assume that's basically the same thing as an audit. And it's so different. To an audit, that it's it's really impossible to kind of explain just how different it is, except to point to the fact that hundreds of millions of dollars were wired into a bank account that was opened on a day, and this attestation was taken at eight fifteen PM that evening. You don't really need to know anything else than that. I mean, there's so much smoke around that as to make you feel that you are actually on fire yourself. Never mind Tether or Bitfinex. Yeah. So,
2: as I said earlier, Grant, sorry to interrupt, but it's like again. When things aren't obvious, it's usually for a reason.
0: Yeah, and look, and that was that—that was the whole reason why I wanted to have this discussion. And I'm so grateful to both of you for taking all this time to do this because look, there are things that we have proof of and the NYAG ruling is the first place perhaps people should start if they want to dig into this further. But there is no proof of fraud. However, when I started looking into this story, and I came across you, Bennett, and started looking at your extraordinary work, as someone who is au fait with the world of finance, there is no doubt in my mind that there is something horribly wrong with this. And so that makes me question the people in the crypto community who are invested in this thing not blowing up as being very keen on kind of waving this away and saying there's nothing to see here. And and when I wrote the piece I wrote recently, I approached two or three Bitcoin guys who I know, who I I think are great guys and, and, you know, I have a lot of respect for them and their thought process and and the way they do evangelize Bitcoin. But, you know, there is a, a rigor to them and a sense of intellectual rigor that I have a lot of time for. And I approached them to say, look, I'm writing a piece about Tether. I'm sceptical about it. It's going to be a sceptical piece. Do you want to actually write anything that I can quote you in to provide the other side to it? And nobody came forward and nobody volunteered anything. Um, I was offered some pieces that were written a year, a year and a half ago. and Given the kind of extraordinary level of output that a lot of these Bitcoin guys have, that again struck me as, interesting that people wouldn't want to do this. And, and you know the last time this happened to me was when I did a podcast uh, about Tesla with Mark Spiegel, who was a, a very vociferous bear at the time. And I offered up at the end of that conversation, the chance for any bulls to come on the podcast, I'd give them equal airtime for them to lay out exactly why this bear case, which seems so compelling, was wrong. And forget the stock price. This wasn't about the stock price. The stock price of Tesla has done what the stock price of Tesla has done. But a lot of the accusations made about the company still stand unrefuted. And so, you know, in closing this podcast with you guys, I would absolutely make the same offer here. You know, I don't want to be accused of being biased. I know what I think about this having done a lot of reading. I know what I think about it having done a lot of research into it, and it stinks to high heaven to me. But if there are any guys out there who can come on and give a credible refutation as to why, This is all okay. And it's not, anyone that wants to come on and say it's all FUD, I've got no time for that. But, you know, Bennett, Kaz, Amy Caster, Bitfinex have laid out in extraordinarily granular detail and done proper forensic work to try to expose this thing. And I would expect a similar level of rigor on the side of anyone that wants to debunk this. But I will give microphone time to anybody that wants to come on and provide a credible counter argument to what Bennett's laid out, to what George has laid out, and to what all these guys have done. So that is an open offer to anybody. You can reach me, info at grant williamscom and please do. I, I would welcome, as I'm sure Bennett would, as I'm sure George would, anyone that can come on and refute the allegations made by them through their work. And I also offer the mic open to any executives of Tether or Bitfinex who want to come on and defend themselves. This is not a hit job. This is uh, hopefully an in-depth dive into what I find some incredibly compelling work that suggests that one of the biggest components of the cryptocurrency market is an absolute fraud. So uh, having said all that, Bennett, again, my thanks to you, not just for giving up this time in your day, which I know is very busy, but for your extraordinary work, your extraordinary diligence in piecing this together. It's, It's remarkable. And please do let people who are new to this story uh, understand where they can follow you and perhaps Kaz on the podcast, because it's um, it's important to dig deeper, I think.
1: Yeah, thank you. I was uh, glad to come on today. You can follow me on Twitter at Bennett Tomlin, which has three T's in a row, because there's two at the end of my first name and one at the beginning of my last name. My co-host, uh, you can follow at Cass Pianci. We have our own podcast where we try to take a critical look at the cryptocurrency ecosystem called Crypto Critics Corner. And you can read all of my writings at this point at bennettftomlin.com. And and Bennett, I think it's important at this point to say that you are not a crypto skeptic, right? You are not someone that has a big beef against crypto. Uh, I'm a crypto skeptic in like the Greek sense of skeptic in that I have a lot of... I generally try to hold most of my beliefs pretty lightly, but I find a lot of the ideas of cryptocurrency very compelling. And like, that's the reason I was right. attracted to the place, the space in the first place. And why I initially thought about working in the space. Right.
0: And uh, Mr. Noble, uh, you and I get a chance to speak Far too rarely. Hopefully, we can do it in person again soon. But just uh, for people that want to follow you, because I know you, again, on Twitter, are all over this story. And you've posted an awful lot of really interesting threads. So tell people where they can follow you, because if yeah, they want I, to follow I, the story, I, they should be I, doing that.
2: Thanks, Grant. Um, one, one thing before I answer. I just want to make it very clear. I'm not anti-Bitcoin at all. I mean, I, I think the future of the world is we will have you know digital money. I mean, the Chinese already announced a few weeks ago, digital yuan, and we'll have digital dollars and all that. So I'm not anti, anti-digital money at all i'm just calling out a specific fraud that i believe is taking place in regards to tether and i think the implications of that how it's really influenced pricing of of so many crypto assets that's really my beef i mean once we get this behind us i mean you know we'll revisit but let me be very clear i'm not on a bitcoin crusade i'm just on a tether crusade so i don't like to have a high social media presence but um you know i felt compelled to speak out about this i'm on twitter Noble 79 or actually more my, what's really the best place is to go to LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn, um, I find that's it's a better forum. So I put it all out there, but I'm, you know, I linked a lot of stuff from uh, Ben and Bitfinex and whatnot. So um, I think it's important we all speak up about this. I really, it's a cry for the regulators to, to do something one way or the other. You know, if Tether can give us a, clean, a full auto, the clean bill of health, fine. You know, we'll stand down from all this, but. I just want to call something out that really desperately needs attention. So that's why we're doing this.
0: Fantastic. Well, look, gentlemen, my thanks to both of you for, for, as I say, giving up this time. I've enjoyed it immensely. And hopefully this has brought what is a fascinating story, if nothing else, to a lot more people's attention. And we'll let more people dig into it to try and uncover what really happens. But however this plays out, I will be following it and I will be relying on the two of you to help me do that. So, again, my thanks to both of you.
2: Thanks very
1: much, Grant. Glad to be here.